Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Archaeo Animals, Cute Animals Galore. Woo! Yay! Much fun. Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> a very low energy start to what should be a very cute and fun episode, I think, hopefully. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always... Ivana Kalanga. Yeah, I guess to get right into it, I mean, because we have a lot to cover. We spend so much of our time on this show talking about like weird animals and gross animals and dead animals, mainly dead animals, I guess, really. 98% dead animals, really. Fictional animals, you know, like, but we don't really get a chance to focus on the cutest animals on the planet. I mean, because we've devoted entire episodes on, you know, some very cute animals. We've talked about cats, we've talked about dogs and rabbits. So, like, we, we have covered some very, very cute animals over the last, over five years now. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, in a way, like, we, we have glanced upon sort of many cute animals, both in the past and present, but we've not really had the time to actually sit down and properly discuss them. So, that brings us here and bringing together you know two of your favorite things probably cute animals and case studies for like one episode of like cutest case studies of all time which is basically <laughs> just going to be an hour of us going oh yeah basically and you know like we said we have covered some cute animals in the past and we are going to use this episode to revisit some of the animals that we've kind of touched upon, but we never really had a chance to kind of talk in a bit longer, um, in a longer way, because, you know, you can only do so many episodes that are themed about like a really broad thing before you can, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm already kind of ready to think about cute things, you know, just get myself going. So yeah, we'll be talking about some um, animals that we've talked about in the past and we'll try and mention where we've talked about them in the past. Uh, So you can, if you want to go back and listen to them, although I realized I didn't write down any of the actual episode numbers. So you'll just have to You'll just have to Google it, I guess. You just have to listen to the entire catalog. You're just going to have to re-listen, folks. Sorry, but you know. But we'll also talk about a few new ones that I don't think we talked about. Although, again, as Simona said, we've been doing this for over five years, so it's really easy to not remember. So... So, um... (laughs) <laughs> Might as well start it off with an animal that we've definitely, albeit very, very briefly, covered, and it's the humble hedgehog. 
Erinacheine species. Because, of course, yeah, a variety of species of hedgehogs. Pretty sure we discussed them in our sort of small creatures episode, uh, specifically talking about uh, hedgehogs in the Neolithic period. Yeah, we talked about them. I think the case study in particular was about Neolithic hedgehogs in Sweden and people measuring remains to kind of figure out where there's been connections between some of the islands like Gotland and Sweden in the past. Because obviously that's 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 the only way really hedgehogs will make it from the island to mainland Sweden. Which is like the one angle that makes them interesting from an osteological point of view. Of course, in uh, in the case of uh, Britain, where <laughs> which uh, Alex and myself are most uh, accustomed to, we'll see, they're <laughs> not particularly um, useful. You can find them, so usually left them sort of like a, in environmental samples because the remains do tend to be quite small, though not as small as some, you know, sort of like smaller rodents and mice and rats. But nevertheless, they're on the small side of life. And uh, yeah, they've lived here for thousands of years and they live in, in fields and, <laughs> and green areas. And it's like, oh, who'd have thunk? But yeah. the usefulness is that they are incredibly cute. Yes. Um, you know, I think even from talking about anything interesting about them anatomically, like osteologically, they are, you know, it's what you expect from a skeleton. I think really the most interesting thing to talk about when it comes to like anatomically is their spines, which are hollow and they're made of keratin, you know, the same material that's uh, made that makes up your hair, your nails, all that kind of stuff. Um, and interestingly enough, I don't know if I've told you this, Simona, but hedgehogs have moved into my yard this year. Oh, very exciting. I actually even bought like a whole little habitat for them, which they are not using, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've been leaving food out for them, which is being eaten by our neighborhood cats, obviously. But other than that, you know, very happy to be hosting hedgehogs. They're very cute. You can hear them snuffling around at night. It's very sweet. Makes oh, me I, can. Happy. I, I sometimes, depending on the time of year, I can see them at dawn because I wake up quite early in the morning. So you oh. see them doing their last round of shopping, so to speak, <laughs> as they head out of the garden and they'll check all the bits around the raised beds where normally sort of slugs would gather. So oh. they're just doing their little rounds. I mean, there, I say they, like there is a, just the one male that's coming around at the minute that I can reliably see, whom I've called Plutarch. <laughs> Whether he likes it or not, well, that, that's too bad. It's called Plutarch. Um, Speaking about uh, Plutarch, I guess we could talk about how, you know, hedgehogs have been in many cultures, both past and present. We're talking about archaeological uses of hedgehogs. Um, they have been used and are still often used as a food source and a medicinal resource. Uh, but uh, perhaps more interesting from an archaeological perspective, they have a vast footprint in iconography, particularly, and this is, I don't think we talked about this at all, but in later periods of ancient Egypt, you could actually find loads of hedgehog iconography, which is something I actually really didn't know about. I, I For some reason, I've never even really seen Egyptian hedgehog depictions, but there's loads for some reason. They're depicted in tomb reliefs uh, as little votive figures. 
as ambulance and perhaps most interestingly as figureheads for boats and not just like one boat there are several boats i believe that have been found to have hedgehog figureheads it's amazing cool um (laughs) i mean like i take it because i just said that they're not awfully interesting from an zooarchaeological standpoint they are it's just uh, what i was referring to from sort of a paleoenvironmental reconstruction <laughs> uh perspective in the case of britain they're not terribly useful but yes they have been used for substance and uh uh they're vastly used in, in iconography in other parts of the world as well yeah i mean there's a lot of cultural symbolism elements you know it's associated with like protection for very obvious reasons but also rebirth but yeah no it's um one of those things that i think we don't really have even though we have hedgehogs in the uk we don't really have like a big long cultural kind of connotation at least when it comes to archaeology which is a shame we should have hedgehog figureheads on boats to be fair, like maybe like the ancient Egyptians just just find hedgehogs cute. I mean, I'm sure you can buy hedgehog necklaces now. It's mm. not necessarily an amulet or a votive figure. People just like hedgehogs. True, very true. They, with my super like utilitarian, like oh maybe they just thought it was cute. <laughs> Which the truth probably lying in the middle, but it's probably both. Yeah, because I can I can assure you there's some Egyptians out there saying, "Yep, that's cute. I'm gonna go put it on my tomb." Because it's cute. But yeah, to keep the the cute train running, um, I mean, I think this animal is uh, particularly cute and also a big meme nowadays, I feel like. The kids love capybaras. And and just the fact that you you said the kids like (laughs) The kids love it. Just showed our age right there. Yeah. it, it it is a meme, although probably on the older side of it. But capybaras, hydrocoerus hydrocheris. Yeah, your um, your Latin's going to be worked out in this episode. Um, which, uh, if you've been following the memes in recent years, they just love everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. They just they go with everything. Yes. You put them somewhere, they'll make friends with everyone around them and then just sit there and look peaceful. Makes me so happy. I've seen so many iterations of it, them with like cats, them with like dogs, them with like sheep. I mean, it's great. No, it's it's great. I wish I could like channel my inner capybara more often, but I'm just a fox with anxiety instead. <laughs> we should we should all be like the capybara. For those who have not heard uh, of the capybara, uh, please come out from under your rock any minute now. Um, but also, no, it's seriously, though, it's, it's the largest living rodent species. Um, it has been used as a food source in many parts of South America. And that sort of is reflected in the archaeological record, because like, you do see that evidence of it being used for substance in archaeological context as well. It's not archaeological related at all. No. Uh, like, <laughs> do, do you want to go for it, Alex? Yeah, because I was like, you know, the, I will admit that some of these cute animals we talk about had some very tenuous archaeological, because a lot of the animals we'll be talking about, a lot of them really don't have anything, you know, particularly 
I don't want to say interesting, but like a lot of them are kind of going to be, when we talk about them archaeologically, we're kind of just talking about, you know, natural deposits and paleo environmental applications of their remains, right? So <laughs> I was trying to see something interesting with capybaras. And this is what I found interesting. And it has nothing to do with archaeology, but there's been some research undertaken on whether or not uh, onsen, which are the Japanese hot springs. And if you look up pictures of capybaras, you'll find loads of photos of them hanging out in these onsen uh, are good for them. And spoiler alert, they are really good for them. Uh, and I wanted a sh- an excuse to share a photo of them just chilling with Simona, which I put in the show notes so she can look at it. Oh. I know. I love those pictures so much because it's like, I will never feel that kind of peace in my life. <laughs> my brain's but- are broken. <laughs> For a slightly quick tangent, also <laughs> a, a, a quick tangent, you said about like many of these animals, there's not a lot going for them from a zoo archaeological standpoint. But in a way, are we writing the zoo archaeologies of these <laughs> cool animals? Of course, they wouldn't be used for substance. They'll just be used for, for memes and education and podcast recording. Yes, true. You know what? So this... Evidence of the capybara in this podcast from 150 years ago. This is why you're my co-host. I need this. You have that analytical brain that's really useful <laughs> for this thing. I just want to talk about cute animals. I didn't really want to really make up a real reason for it. It is so philosophical. Like I, I went to uni for many years for this. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Um, um, okay, moving very swiftly on, onto some actual science. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, again, it's another cute animal. Come on. It's one that we've talked about, though. The soy sheep, which is just opisaries. It's, yay! Yay, I did it. Alex is Latin. Yes, a, a very commonly used word for us. Um, so yeah, we actually have discussed this one in our Primitive Breeds episode. Uh, just a real quick kind of recap of what the Soe sheep are. They can be traced back to a feral population from the island of Soe in the St. Kilda archipelago. They remained physically quite close to what ancient sheep likely looked like. And, you know, they've been really useful in helping archaeologists kind of further understand early sheep-human relations. Uh, Potentially may have been brought from St. Kilda to England by noted archaeologist and all-around bad guy Augustus Pitt Rivers, uh, who may have also been one of the first people to recognize their usefulness in archaeology. And uh, with the Soe sheep, actually, if I remember correctly, they present a characteristic that a lot of the modern sheep breeds don't have, mm-hmm. um, as in they will shed. Yes, I believe so. They will shed. So if you need to shear them or actually harvest an amount of sort of the wool, you have to literally pluck them, which you get. You tend to get with a lot of the basal breeds um, of sheep, of which the Soe is one. Because, um, of course, as we've uh, practiced more artificial selections of sheep for well, our own benefit, we've uh, sort of put that extra control onto our hands where like, we would have to physically go and share them so we would acquire all of the re- resource all at once. So it's just something we have bred into them to get that extra bit of control. Yeah. So, so a sheep are kind of considered to be maybe, and this is probably a bit simplified, but some archaeologists consider them to be kind of what, you know, bronze ape sheep would eventually be like. And these, for the most part, in 
the North Atlantic, they were more or less replaced by Arnage sheep, which are closer to like the Hebridean sheep. Uh, however, obviously in the island of Soe, they've remained as they are. And it's good for us because it's just helpful in kind of thinking about how ancient sheep breeds would have been and how they would have looked like. And yeah, and they're cute. They're very cute. Speaking of... Keeping it on the domestic train, another cute uh, undulate that is uh, the Highland Cow. Do you want to do the Latin for this? Bostaris. Specifically a Scottish breed of cattle. And I even wrote down the Scottish Gaelic and uh, I even wrote down the pronunciation and I still don't feel confident in saying it. Right, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Um, Bo Gaelau. Yes, I think that's right. Apologies in advance. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you're Scottish, sorry. Sorry. I mean, realistically, uh, if you're Scottish and you've been listening to this podcast, like, real sorry for me. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, there's some dispute over their actual origins, whether they were originally bred in Scotland or they were imported sort of via the Vikings, a.k.a. Scandinavian seafaring peoples, Uh, whether they were bred from two particular breeds of cattle. It is unknown. The jury's still out. Probably a combination of all these things. Let's face it. Um, But they weren't a recognized breed until the late 1800s in Scotland. Archaeologically, however, besides them being incredibly cute and probably still looking cute back then, not an awful lot we can say about them because, as you may know if you've been listening along to the show, you can't really differentiate between breeds because uh, underneath the, they all look the same, <laughs> archaeologically speaking. Like, yeah, unless we're talking about like dog or cat, modern day dog or cat breeds, which obviously osteologically they can be extremely different for the most part particularly when we're talking about sheep and uh, cattle breeds it's pretty difficult i think there's probably some morphological differences but you'd have to be but then yeah also like it apply the same that goes for cats and dogs applies to others so like a more far removed yeah into the past as well because even though they would have had breeds of say dogs back then they would be nothing or not necessarily anything like the breeds that we have now. So you wouldn't be able, oh, it's this Roman Doberman. It's, it's not how it works. I mean, based on the, um, so the osteology, uh, you can maybe get an idea of sort of what the function of the dog was or whether it was more of a sighthound looking dog, but that's probably as far as it goes. Tangent over. <laughs> So yeah, we can't really differentiate between breeds, so there's not much we can really say about this archaeologically. I just think they're cute. So, there. Very cute, very fluffy. They're very cute, very fluffy. I'm actually really sad. I've never seen one in person, even though I work in Scotland a lot, <laughs> which is a bummer. Tell you what, I don't think I have. Yeah, what the heck? We should go. We should go specifically to find a Highland cow and bring it back with us. And you can take it, like, for the first six months of the year, and I'll take it for, like, the second six months of the year. Oh, yeah, we'll have, we'll have this pastoral thing going, yeah. so when I've got it sort of in, in, in the south. <laughs> and then you'll, you'll walk it up. During the winter month, and then I'll walk it up the Yorkshire Dales. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, while we figure out the logistics of this plan, I think we should take a break, and we'll be back yes. with more cute animals. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, episode 64. We're talking cute animals galore. And what's our next animal, Simona? It is perhaps the cutest of them all. Pretty sure they've also won a prize for, like, happiest animal. Yes, they have. <laughs> I saw that. And it is the quokka, Cetonix brachyrus. Now, we did discuss the quokka, I think, very briefly during our Oceana zooarchaeology episode. But they're basically a uh, macropod species, which is a family of marsupials that also include kangaroos and wallabies. And as Simona said, they're the happiest animal because they do have like a facial thing where they they always look like they're smiling. Like, I think you I think it's referred to as like the, the most selfie worthy animal because of that because they do tend to be concentrated on the one island and they're super habituated because of course people are now like flocking there to take selfies with them but they don't seem to mind too much so i guess you know that that's fine so long as you're respectful so like every other animal we're basically going to be talking about they're usually kind of found as natural deposits in the archaeological record really useful for environmental concerns but that's more or less it however quokka remains found in mid 19th century whaling station sites along the australian coast have actually shown signs of consumption so archaeologists who worked on these sites believe that the european settlers were <laughs> growing bored of their mainly salted mutton rations, uh, they decided to hunt and eat the local quokka population. So, yeah, among a lot of the, the many horrible things that uh, settlers have done, that's pretty bad too. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I wish I had a nicer story to tell about the quokka, but that was like mainly the, the the one archaeological like case study I could find, which really bummed me out <laughs> as well. Well, we got to balance the good with the bad, don't we? True, true. Yeah, too too much cuteness, you know, it might 
send an overload. So we need to like ground us with some, some horrible stories. Just like they probably ground the, the quark. <laughs> no, Sorry. No. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. moving very swiftly on, onto uh, an amphibian that has made it to the list. It's a, uh, well, I guess it, it, it must have been increase, increasing in popularity recently because I don't but I must have seen memes about it. It's the axolotl, Ambistoma mexicanum. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I see a lot of like Instagram videos of axolotls because they're also, I feel like they're gaining popularity as a pet. I mean, people have always kind of had axolotls as pets, but I feel like I see more of them. Oh. There's uh, one person who I think has an axolotl and they basically take like a, a dry erase marker and like draw like hair and like a little bikini on the axolotl, like just on the glass. I was going to say, I thought I was drawing on the axolotl. No, no, no. Like, oh, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's just drawing like, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, I feel like I've seen a lot more axolotl content and they, you know what? They're very, very cute. To be honest, they're, they're you know, we just talked about the quokka being one of the happiest animals, but I think axolotl also because they've just kind of got like a natural, a nat- natural. That's the word I'm trying to use. A natural smile, kind of. Yeah, sort of. Um, but yeah, if you want to hear more about the axolotl uh, from an actual scientific standpoint, uh, <laughs> we have covered it in our amphibian episode. Uh, but yes, biologically, it's basically a species of salamander that it's, um, the, its uniqueness is that it remains aquatic throughout its life, as opposed to many other amphibians sort of move more towards land or towards, you know, a more amphibious lifestyle in the name as they grow up. <laughs> I think in that episode, we also talked a bit about the fact that axolotls, like many other amphibians, can regenerate their limbs and kind of what that would mean on a zooarchaeological aspect is you know could you see that in the zooarchaeological record and i think we both decided we don't know because we don't work with axolotls Absolutely, because they, if they reform the limb does it go through the fusion process again yeah like i, I we talked a bit because i think i found like um a study about that's kind of looked at how that process works from an osteological perspective uh and i think you probably could but eh, between the how the, their, their size and you know the how long it takes for regeneration to happen like identifying that would be potentially difficult yeah, because I guess yeah, the, the the yeah, I'm not sure whether it goes through the whole like fusion process or, or the bones are reformed, already fused as they would in an adult. Yeah, I don't know. And so, what, what's the life expectancy? Because so, you know, bone remodels after a number of years, usually it's about ten years in humans. I'm sure it's not too dissimilar in other species as well. So, would oh. No, no I'm fine. not getting into that. No, it's fine. Just listen to our old episode where we probably have this exact same conversation. <laughs> but yeah, and, you know, based, as you can tell maybe by their Latin name, Mexicanum, they are a culturally significant animal in Mexico, as well as more or less being native to Mexico. Uh, zooarchaeological evidence points to a long-standing tradition as a food source where they are often either grilled or boiled or roasted and often served with peppers, particularly among the Aztecs. And it's observed that their kind of regenerative 
properties may have impacted local mythology and folklore, as well as its symbolic value in Mexico. Also, apologies in advance, because a lot of the archaeological stuff we'll talk about is about eating these animals, which, you know, it's just what happens. Um, but yeah. Well, as we said, the, the good and the bad. It's like, oh, and then uh, behold, the axolotl, like oh, this cute uh, amphibious creature. Boil them, mash them, put them in a stew. Yeah, I mean, you know, chickens are cute, night chickens, so can't judge. Moving on to something that looks sort of like a chicken, but also not quite. (laughs) Should we say a duck? Yeah, I was going to say, maybe more of a duck. Uh, It had to be here. It's the platypus, everyone. Ornithorhynchus anatinus. Which, of course, we would have covered in our Oceania episode. Yes. Now, obviously, it has very unique characteristics, mainly that it's a mammal that lays eggs. And as Simona was trying to refer to, it does have a flat bill in front, which is osteologically made up of these kind of almost pincer-like dentary bones, which supports the leathery bill on top. So if you do see what a platypus skull looks like, it's very interesting because of the fact that those two bones that really support the bill do kind of in my head they always look like pincers the fun fact about the platypus is that when a specimen was first sent to england in 1799 it was assumed to be a hoax (laughs) yes my dog is not impressed by the platypus that's fair clearly but yeah, no, it's it's interesting because, you know, we have had a previous episode, a very old episode, actually, of two episodes, actually, uh, about cryptids and fake taxidermy. And so this is, it was interesting to come across this kind of uh, point about uh, platypuses because it kind of, it's similar to that, except this is obviously real. So yeah, it, when um, people first sent a platypus, a taxidermy platypus uh, to England. People looked at it and were like, this is clearly a, like a mouse or not mouse, like a a big rodent with a duck bill sewed onto it. Uh, Apparently this is because Chinese sailors did pranks like this often, which... I I, I feel like Tristan should probably read out the the quote in a very obnoxious accent. Oh, I'm called for Great, two seconds. I need to pick up the Trello board. I closed my window because I know. So professional here. Where's it gone? What's it called again? What's it? What are we doing again? I can't remember. Sorry. I'll go get the quote. Segment two. Wow. Uh, Do do you want this like in kind of like the English sailor? saying it oh yeah robert knox sergeant aware of the monstrous impostures which the artful chinese had so frequently practiced on european adventurers the scientific community felt inclined to class as a rare production of nature with eastern mermaids and other works of art what do you think yay robert (laughs) knox sergeant yeah Robert Knox, surgeon. I'd like to think my Chinese ancestors would be proud of me for dunking on the English as much as they clearly did. Except I'm not doing cool bits like they clearly did with pranks. 
a prank taxidermy. That's so cool. <laughs> I need, I desperately need to know more about this. Like, <laughs> oh man, if I had the time and I was like, I guess randomly getting more fleshy bits of animal rather than the bones I usually get, I'd be all over this. That's so funny. That's such a good bit. <laughs> Being like, hey, let's send this back to England and say it's, I don't know, something. Tell them it's a platypus. <sighs> good jokes. <laughs> and at least no platypuses were eaten in this episode. They just stuffed. Just stuffed and <laughs> assumed to have been fake. <laughs> Um, but now to keep it in the same continent uh, again we have another cute a lot of cute animals out of Oceania yeah Um, uh, again one of the ones that we have to mention and it's the koala Pascolactus cinereus which again if you want to hear more about the koala we also discuss them in our Oceania episode surprise surprise as they are in marsupial and in fact the only living species from the Pascolactidae family. So koalas uh, obviously have a very strong preference for eucalyptus leaves uh, from eucalyptus trees. I think that's kind of what most of us would think about when we think about um, koalas, but they are often linked to other species of trees as well, like the acacia, I think, is another one. Um, there's a couple other trees that they will, you know, hang out in uh which is you know sounds like it's not that interesting but it's actually quite important uh from an archaeological perspective so koala remains and their preferred trees have been really useful in examining how past climate change have impacted the distribution of both the fauna and flora here so both the distribution of koala bears as well as, I know they're not bears, but you know what I mean, koalas, and uh, also the trees that they love so much. And this is one of those really interesting applications of zooarchaeology, which we have also talked about in a previous episode, about how they're able to use data from the past to potentially predict responses to the future. So this data that they've generated from looking at koala remains in the archaeological record have been used to kind of predict maybe what the responses of the population would be to both present and future climate change. Unsurprisingly, probably wouldn't be great but, you know, good to know. Yeah, but yeah, we covered that in a case study for the Oceania episode. So again, if you're interested, please go back to that. And actually, if not, you know, take it up a notch and go to the entire mini-series that we've done where we cover sort of uh, various regions of the world and the zoo archaeologies within. So Treat yourself. <laughs> so, to, so for something a bit different, we're going to talk about an animal that... I'm not sure we've actually talked about. Potentially in passing a few times. Yeah, but like, it's not one of those animals that we really would have dedicated a whole episode to. No, again, I feel like it's one that we may have covered sort of in the North America episode. Maybe, yeah. in one of its iterations, so to speak. Um, it's a beaver. Castor species. So as Simona kind of implied, there are two main, at least existing species. The, uh, yeah, the, 
you can go for it. The North American beaver, Castor canadensis, and the Eurasian beaver, Castor fiber. So it's the second largest species of rodent after the capybara, of course. And obviously, their probably most interesting anatomical feature besides their massive, massive incisors that they share with a lot of their other rodent family members. Uh, But the other thing is probably their tail, which is actually made of uh, flattened caudal vertebrae, which is something for some reason I've literally never thought about, given that they are quite flat, unlike a lot of other animal tails, which are more, you know, three-dimensional, I guess. Um, And they're covered with a a hairless, leathery outside, and they mainly store fat inside, which they can draw upon if they need to for, you know, extra energy. It's just one species that you don't particularly think of, because while I think in the mainland, uh, it is still sort of a relatively healthy species number-wise, I think it is used was and still used for sustenance or some of the Baltic countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are turbo-endangered in Britain. Yeah. So even though I think they were found here aplenty in the past, uh, as always, we've done a brilliant job of obliterating anything that moves. Uh, so I think there's a few sort of po- populations in Scotland and a few other places where they've been introduced, but they're not doing too great. Were they like... What I feel like they were like recently reintroduced to some areas, or am I making that up? Potentially, I think a few locations in Scotland. They're definitely one of those species that are always on the like let's reintroduce them list, though for sure. Well, they they belong here and they're very useful. Yeah, and uh, archaeologically, they're also really useful as they're a taphonomic agent. So obviously, they make burrows, which can cause a lot of post-depositional sedimentary activity. Uh, And obviously, they can create ecofacts through gnawing wooden materials. And they're also found in the archaeological record in kind of hunting contexts as well. Um, They're very much desired for their pelts, but also castor... Is it castorium? Did I say it? I should look up how to pronounce that. I think so. Castorium. Castorium, which is used for perfume and medicine and as flavoring. And it's probably best to not think about where it's from, which is their castor sacs, which is like like next to their urethra, I think. Oh, lovely perfume. Yes. And food flavoring. Yum, yum. Uh... And to really round off this great, like, interesting fact about them, uh, they poop in the water. And not only do they poop in the water, because of what they, you know, chew on, they, their poop often just creates balls of sawdust. It's not something I've ever thought about in my life, and I'm sure it's not something you've ever thought about in your life. But now we all collectively know about this. I'm not allowed to speak for yourself. You used to like keep me up at night. I wake up three o'clock in the morning. It's like, but how do how do beavers poo? <laughs> what does their poo look like? What, what's the and ratio? Now I know. Sawdust. It's so it's I, the fact that it's also specified as like balls of sawdust. So now it's like if you ever come across a ball of sawdust and you're like, oh, that's interesting, and you go to lean and pick it up, have a second thought. 
<laughs> you may not know where that's from, but now you actually kind of know where that's from. So, so while you reassess the ball of sawdust that you found in your pond in the garden, we'll take a break. It is weird. I've never really thought about that. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back with episode 64 of Archeo Animals. We're looking at the cutest animals ever. And we're going to start off with our next animal. Uh, Tristan, if you can. Penguins. Spedici, the species. <laughs> That's a reference for five people, I guess. Well, it was the Graham Norton show. That's more than five people. That's yeah, like ten so people. We have listeners from different countries, you know. Oh, if you don't get the reference, come Benedict Cumberbatch, actor, cannot pronounce penguins properly, so it says penguins. And uh, the BBC thought to put him on a like a nature documentary about penguins and have him kind of try and work his way through that. I think that they knew what they were doing. Sorry. Back to the show, ladies. Anyway, they were talked about briefly in the Antarctica episode. Yes, we did do an episode on the zooarchaeology of Antarctica. We talked about it for an hour. You should go listen to it. It was a lot of work, but I think it was very interesting. And also, penguins are my favorite animal. And I was the person who wrote these show notes so we are going to talk about penguins whether you like it or not i think they're cute just saying <laughs> well, fair, worth noting even though they're mainly associated with places like antarctica they're also found in australia new zealand and south america yeah it's one of those things you kind of i feel like is really easy to forget they are not just antarctica they're in a lot of more temperate places so the largest species is the emperor penguin aptenodites forsteri and the smallest is the blue penguin eudiptula minor and it's also called the fairy penguin and that is so cute it deserves it i love it it is a fairy penguin now, unfortunately, we are going to talk about people eating them. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> because archaeologically, again, you know, penguins are just seabirds, right? So they have been heavily used in past subsistence, particularly throughout the Holocene. And they're basically found in these archaeological contexts. They actually make up 80% of the total bird biomass in southern oceans. And perhaps more importantly, if you've never seen what a penguin skeleton looks like, please look it up because you will you will be shocked to look at that neck. Mm. If you look up a penguin skeleton, it's like all vertebra and then like two big legs. And because penguins are just kind of like, you know, like big blobs, you don't really think about them squealy. And then you look up a skeleton, you're like, oh, huh. hashtag big chunky necks. Big chunky necks, yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like, it makes sense, right? But <laughs> it's a bit weird. Yeah. They're so cute, though. I do like a penguin. 
<laughs> baby penguins. Yeah. Oh, and they hold them between their feet. It's the cutest thing in the world. They're the baby emperor penguins that are kind of sort of grey and fluffy, like yeah. The- oh, they're so cute. <laughs> oh man, there's a comedian that um, I knew really liked penguins, and I like hung out with him after a show. And he showed me he had this huge tattoo on his arm of just a penguin. And he always, I always think about how he refers to penguins when I think about penguins, which he's like, they're just wiener dogs that are walking on two legs. And he's right. They are wiener dogs that are walking on two legs. <laughs> anyway, kind of in the bit of a similar. Um, yeah, just in a much bigger wiener dog with no legs. Yeah. Uh, beluga whales. Delphinapterus leucas. Now, I don't know if you thought this was a cute animal. This is like an animal you think of when you think of cute animals, but I think blue whales are really cute. The whales are cute. They're majestic. Yeah, and also, weirdly enough, what I just realized right now is... <laughs> with penguins and beluga whales put right next to each other these are two things that i have really strong memories writing reports about in grade school so this might be my subconscious really talking to me like i've really internalized these two animals as cute animals from a young age but i mean very cute they are uh even the big bump on their head is cute Yeah, so, you know, we have talked about whales in various episodes. They're obviously incredibly important elements of coastal life. Uh, We have loads of really interesting archaeological context for whales, particularly here in the UK. Uh, But I really want to talk about blue whales because they're so cute. I mean, as... Simona just mentioned they have that big bump on their head and it's so cute that they even have a cute name. It's literally called a melon. Like, it's called a melon. Beluga melon. Beluga melon. So it's mainly fatty tissue and it's technically an organ that helps with echolocation. Like, even... To the point that it even slightly changes shape based on the sounds being made. And again, that's just, that's so cute. So now to the bit where they eat them. Yeah, a bit. But, you know, it's um, a really kind of interesting um, element because really, like, whales are really interesting on an archaeological perspective because of the fact that they're not only consumption uh like food resources but they're also kind of material resources as well obviously we have loads of really interesting uh artifacts made from whale bone which i actually i always found really interesting and amazing to look at um but more specifically uh Indigenous populations in the Arctic have utilized beluga whales for both subsistence as well as tool making. Now, unfortunately for belugas, they can get stuck quite close to shore when temperatures quickly drop uh, and that causes ice to form. Uh, So them, along with narwhals, can often be really accessible for hunting um, and, again, for being used for tool making. So we, that 
tends to make very fragmented bone assemblages. But fortunately for us, zooms or zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry, which we have talked a lot about in our podcast episodes, um, they've made that quite easy uh, for identification purposes, which is great. But next up, we're keeping the sea theme going. <laughs> yeah. Because we we're moving on to sea otters, Anidra lutris, which is technically one of the smallest marine mammals, but also mustelid-wise, it's actually the heaviest. Which I've never really thought about them being mustelids, but they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, sea otters are an example of a keystone species, which is, uh, I mean, we've mentioned this in the past, but j just to reiterate, it's a species with a significant influence on the wider environment that doesn't necessarily correlate with the size of its population. So that's when it comes in very useful paleo-environmental reconstruction. So traditionally, sea otters have been used for both pelts and as food by indigenous people, including the Clinkett people in Alaska and Canada. And one of the really interesting things about zooarchaeological work with sea otters and kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to mention them in this episode, although they are so cute. And I don't know if you've seen these videos, Simona, of the, when they hold hands. In the water, yes. they don't float away. That's like the cutest thing in the world. Oh, to be a little sea otter getting their hands held in the water. Ugh. I'm in a really good place mentally, guys. It's fine. Have you gone to your capybara place? <laughs> I've gone to my capybara place. And then in there, I've gone into my sea otter place. It's like like a multiple mind palaces of cuteness. Imagine. A sea otter holding a capybara by the hand. Ugh, my heart's going to stop. I'm just going to die in the middle of this oh, podcast. Capybara is going to need like a buoyancy aid or something. But, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We can get we can get a, a life preserver on them. Uh, but yeah, going back to kind of a more serious topic, um, there's been some really interesting zooarchaeological work. Um, even you can even refer to it as kind of decolonial zooarchaeological work um, that's been done in collaboration with uh, Clinkett people, um, which has shown that what we traditionally use as cut mark typologies in zooarchaeology are actually not useful in investigating butchery for sea otters. So, you know, obviously we have cut marks that we associate with butchery that is usually useful for most animals, particularly domestic animals, but you can't really apply those to sea otters. Um, so zooarchaeologists have taken um, kind of modern day uh, processed sea otters and compared them to archaeological ones uh, to really get an idea of what we might be missing um, as far as having typologies and also it's been able to showcase the importance of pelts for our clinket ancestors when it came to utilizing sea otters so it's a really cool study to be honest and um something that again i don't think most of us would think about so that's why it's really important to have kind of indigenous worldviews uh, as part of archaeological interpretation mm -hmm. and also like bringing these communities on board for what is actually their heritage exactly so, and you know and all good in my book. And all sea otters are cute. We're getting out of the ocean, though. Don't worry. We're getting out of the water. We're getting quite far out of the water. Yes, um, <laughs> we're going bigger of that as well, because the next one is giant pandas. Iluropoda melanoleuca. 
So we have discussed them a little bit in our episode on Asian archaeology, which is obvious because they're kind of the icon for modern day China. But weirdly enough, it's not really an animal that's had a long history of iconography. You actually can't really find like a, a long-standing historical uh, tradition of the the panda being utilized as like an icon for China or even for like imperial power or anything. Like it's just kind of been a more recent invention. I guess maybe as the numbers dwindled. Yeah. Possibly. So th- there is one historical instance of its significance, which is the Empress Dowager Bo, uh, who lived during the Han Dynasty, allegedly had a pet panda in her garden, which I would love that to be me, but it's not. Um, so this is up for debate as, you know, we don't really have that much evidence to go uh and support this. But when archaeologists did find her tomb complex, they actually found a panda skull in it, which is really interesting. She might have also just liked pandas. Who knows? Yes. And to keep it in the panda realm, um, <laughs> well, it's still like same sort of well, genus-ish because we go from Iluropoda to Ilurus species. Close enough, probably. Uh, it's the red panda. So, I mean, like, it, it's not actually that closely related to the giant panda, although the, they do have one thing in common. They're both super cute. Though they, they do are actually closer to raccoons. More on that later. Uh, there's actually two species of red panda, the Himalayan red panda. Ailurus fulgens. And the Chinese red panda. Ailurus thiani. And they are really cute. I mean, they're one of those things where it's like you see videos of them and you're kind of like, that could be like a person in a costume. They're just so cute and like, I don't know. I guess because their face is so round. Yeah, like my face is round. I could be a red panda. You can be whatever you wish to be. Oh, thank you, Simona. (laughs) (laughs) Archaeo animals also comes with affirmations. (laughs) So, like the the giant panda, it's difficult to find historical documents to connect it to, like, older folklore, cultural traditions. However, it's still culturally significant for its pelt and as medicinal uh, resources imparted to bats. To make our purpose as a zoo archaeology podcast a bit more difficult, there's actually no fossils for the living species that have been identified, at least as of this recording. Um, And older fossils originally associated with the genus have now been identified as something else. So we really don't know too much about the red panda in the past um so that that one day it appeared yeah and he was here and thank god (laughs) so more recent work has been done trying to kind of locate signifiers for the species uh which would be useful in kind of establishing a baseline to look at paleo-environmental data uh and of course because we can't be cute without being a little gross uh that's mainly being done through their poop it's a very poop heavy episode actually 
More so than Oh, we've only mentioned it like twice. But that's like more than usual. <laughs> Which is zero, hopefully. <laughs> um, um, but yes, but like analyzing their scat allows to identify specific vegetation that's linked to the species as well as any seasonal variations and stabilized stuff that baselines to compare extinct species with. So hopefully that yields something interesting. Yeah, we'll see. Um, to, to, to round off our panda run, we have one final panda to talk about to end our episode as well. And it's the trash panda, a.k.a. raccoons. Prokyan Lothot. So weirdly enough, despite many archaeologists finding kinship with the trash panda due to our sheer love of rummaging through garbage, I don't think we've actually talked about raccoons. Just because they're super cute and like in their hands. They got grabby hands. So like when they're looking for something in the water and they just put their hands like... They got grabby hands. I love them. Uh, So one of the reasons why I think we haven't really talked about it is because, or at least one of the the times we may have talked about it is because around the time I realized that we had squirrels in the UK, which happened on this podcast, I'm not really sure what episode that was, but I'm sure you can find it. It was quite early on, yeah. but I have never forgotten that. Of course. I'm sure the listeners have not forgotten that. Yeah, no. Um, it also took me a long time to realize that there weren't raccoons in the UK. No, I don't. Uh, at least not except for the odd ones that are probably kept as pets somewhere. I think I remember, I think we discussed it in the episode where we mentioned raccoons the first time round, but it was in the news a few years back oh, where yeah. some people found a raccoon in their front room because they, they, they heard a noise downstairs <laughs> and thought it was a burglar. So they came downstairs to find a raccoon in England, which was most puzzling. I'm not sure what happened to the raccoon if it did belong to some someone, but the I'm, article wasn't clear. But there you go, just random raccoon in your living room. But you, you, you can understand why they're so cute. <laughs> like grabbing all your pots and pans. So yeah, even though we don't have raccoons in the UK, uh, raccoon pelts were actually really commonly exported to the United Kingdom. Um, sometimes to even be exported further to Eastern Europe, where raccoon pelts were really sought after for hats, uh, as well as a, a kind of a lighter version of a fur coat. Uh, obviously, this was part of the kind of trade with uh, the newly instated colonies uh, in the United States. And uh, raccoon pelts as well were often used in Scottish menswear in the Highlands, such as the sporran. Uh, or the bit of the kilt, sort of with the, the fluffy bit, um, which is, was often used as a substitute for seal skin, as it is the case for some caps worn in the British military. And we have to mention, before we end this episode, the other very important uh, thing about raccoons, and that is the baculum, is often <laughs> used... <is> gross. <laughs> It's often used as a toothpick in parts of the southern United States, often referred to as a Texas toothpick. 
Uh, indigenous people have used them in the past to uh, pack pipes. And uh, moonshiners still use the baculum, particularly the raccoon baculum, uh, to distill their moonshine. Uh, if you go to a roadside attraction in a lot of parts of the south of the United States, you can actually buy raccoon baculum because they're seen as a good luck charm. Now, what are baculum, you may be thinking? We have talked about in this in the past, but it is, it's the penis bone. So, yeah. So it's still balancing that out, you know, with the, the cute and gross. Yes, yes. And that's gross, a, a good way to end the episode, I think. Now, just a reminder, uh, if you haven't caught our last episode for some reason, we have announced that the show is ending. This is our second to last episode. And what a great second to last episode to have. Uh, but our last episode is coming up. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, you can still listen to our entire archive on the Archaeology Podcast Network, wherever you get your podcasts. It's always nice to still, you know, give us a nice review for, for all time's sake. Um, and is there anything else, Simona, that you'd like to say? Uh, as usual, any hate mail can go to Tristan. Yeah, even long after we're gone, just keep sending the hate mail to Tristan. I think it keeps him alive. I think it's really important for him to, to get that. Great. Thanks. Thanks both of you. Yeah. All I get is fan mail, you know, saying, Tristan, why, why don't you do more impressions? Tristan, why don't you contribute more? You know, be part of this podcast. Tristan, your jokes are so funny. <laughs> okay. Okay. Turn the knife a little bit more. My God, can we just get a bonus episode of Tristan doing puns? Oh, I don't I mean, know. If the, it doesn't really work. Like, I, my humor works. Oh, I'm like a parasite, you know? My own humor you just really stop works. stop right there. other people. But we should mention that the final episode that we're doing will have a special treat for everybody. We are going to be working on a bingo card. Aren't we? Yes. Yeah? And Tristan's going to make that. Tristan is. Tristan's yeah. going to make it. <laughs> So in anticipation of the final episode, um, yeah, just think about the kind of things that you're used to hearing on here. And uh, let's see if we can play bingo. Otherwise, we'll, yeah, we'll see you on our final episode, folks. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.